What is most concerning to me, uh, and I hope this becomes, uh, you know, concern for everyone, is that what it comes down to, the most like atrocious outcome to adoption is for those of us who die by suicide, that an outcome of adoption is suicide for those of us adopted. This is an undeniable truth and it's not being highlighted enough. It's more so than the mental health issues, addiction issues, and the other kind of outcomes that come from uh, this adoption trauma. It is the fact that there are too many of us who are dying by suicide. And this being uh, not talked about enough not out there in the mainstream, like at all really, and unacknowledged and ignored. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Moses Farrow. Moses is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in what he calls adoption trauma. He's an outspoken advocate for mental health, suicide prevention, and adoption reform. Moses brings personal experience to his work, since he is among the 10 children adopted by actress Mia Farrow. He was later adopted by Mia's former partner, Woody Allen, and in 2018 published a stunning account of what it was like growing up in this family and why he supports his father in the highly publicized sexual abuse allegations made in the wake of a custody battle in 1992. In this conversation, Moses talks about his work with adoptees, his own story as an adoptee, and the importance of shedding light on the aspects of adoption that are often overlooked, if not totally ignored. Most pressingly, the high rate of attempted suicide. His practice is in Connecticut, and he spoke with me from there. Moses Farrow, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You are known to the public to some extent, because of the rather extraordinary circumstances in which you were raised. Uh, I do want to get to that, of course, but first I was hoping you could talk about your work now. You're a family therapist in Connecticut, and my understanding is your work focuses on what you call adoption trauma. Can you tell us what kinds of issues come up in your practice and what kind of dimensions the whole subject takes on that the average person might not know or think about? I would love to. Uh, the kind of work that I do, I've really come into both uh, as a professional and through my personal experiences as an adopted person. And the kinds of issues that come up when I talk about adoption trauma, it really stems out of the initial traumatic loss of the birth mother, the birth family the biological ties to one's culture, country, heritage, really in all the different ways that we identify ourselves. That is one dimension of uh, the trauma that comes along uh, specifically with being adopted. There are other dimensions of traumas that come before and after being adopted. So. There are different types of adoption that need to be uh, acknowledged. It isn't um, 
you know, just one kind of experience. Uh, and that is one of the, the things that make it so diverse and challenging at the same time is for each of us, we have our own individual stories, our own individual experiences of what it's like to be adopted. For myself, I was adopted uh, around two years old from Korea, and I became a world traveler uh, when I landed in New York City. I uh, was told that I was left in a, in a phone booth just on the streets of Seoul, uh, and someone had found me and brought me to the Social Welfare Society. It's not an uncommon story from what I've learned. Uh, there are all types of ways that children are, uh, quote, given up uh, or abandoned or in some way handed off. Uh, in some respects, some adoptees feel it's very closely linked to child trafficking practices. And so this is just really chipping at the, the tip of the iceberg of a range of issues that come out from the experience of being adopted. Uh, the other dimensions that are coming out uh, a lot these days for me is uh, from being transracially adopted like i have like i have been a lot of my clients uh, struggle with internalized racism from being adopted into white families white communities uh, when they come from other countries and coming from other cultures and races yeah i wanted to ask you moses transnational adoption seemed really big starting in what, like the the late 80s into the 90s? Am I remembering that? Well, I feel like there was a point in the 90s where it seems like everybody was adopting babies from Asia. Can you put sort of a like a timeline on this in terms of Americans uh, adopting from overseas? I will do my best. I can take it back to uh, after the Korean War. Okay. And really the Vietnam War, uh, where it was uh, becoming uh, a, a practice to adopt war orphans. And so it's really, from what I understand, shall we say, um, the uh, international connection between Korea and America back in the 60s and 70s that really, in a way, put international adoption on the map. Hmm. And uh, to your point, things picked up in the 80s and 90s, uh, from my understanding, especially with, uh, with China you know, um, enforcing their one-child policy. Right, right. And did that also coincide with the movement Domestically, here in the States, wherein social workers were discouraging people from adopting children outside of their own race, or was that a separate phenomenon, as far as you know? Domestically, so this, this can go back a bit further uh, in American history, where it, it was practiced uh, what was called these backdoor adoptions where it, there was a uh, social stigma for getting pregnant um, 
too early, out of wedlock, uh, bringing shame to families, uh, and not not really having any other option or feeling like there was any other option. Adoption was considered to be this big secret, so it was widely practiced, you know, to have these, uh, you know, so-called backdoor adoptions where uh, they were children of the same race as their families and, and therefore raised as if they were a lot of... Uh, meaning meaning they're not told, meaning it was n- nothing close to what we would consider an open adoption now. Mm, exactly where I was going, yes. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So getting back to the the international adoption, you said at, at the beginning that the story of being abandoned, so the story you were told was that you were left in a phone booth that seems almost has like superhero connotations <laughs> to it somehow, uh, as if you're sub- somebody was reading too many Superman comics. Like, is that a common just sort of lie that is told or like, I, I actually, I have heard it. Um, I have heard it a lot and it actually never crossed my mind that it wouldn't be true. Like, is it ever true? Like, what do you make of that? For my adoption story, uh, uh, and, and Megan, the, uh, connotation with, um, Superman, uh, I think it went as far as like being wrapped in a blue, blue blanket. Really? One of my pictures that's out there, I'm holding a little Superman like uh, car, you know, toy car. Um, I I certainly grew up with a very uh, very close tie to the story of. Wow, I just thought of that. That's amazing because I just thought of that off the top of my head when you when you <laughs> use that as an example. So okay, well, it's no secret you're you you were adopted from South Korea. 1980 is that right when you were two years old right you did not have a typical story in that you uh of the adopted son of woody allen and mia farrow i believe at the time it was just mia farrow right she adopted you as a single mother is that correct yes she did okay you from what i read you had cerebral palsy you were mia's seventh child overall can you describe as much as you're comfortable with what it was like growing up in that family. Obviously, it's not something that can be done quickly, but maybe talk about some of the more notable dynamics in that family. Yeah, I uh, no, I, I certainly appreciate you asking this uh, because I've, I've been more open about sharing the kinds of experiences that I've uh, that I've had growing up uh, with Mia, and um, it was. Uh, kind of a journey of of you know realizing that uh i am a survivor of childhood abuse and you know just recognizing that um it was uh scary to grow up in, in that household uh, i lived in a great amount of fear much of the time i had been close with uh with my sisters growing up and you know at the time all of which were were adopted, uh, and um, it was, um, you know, really just a, a mix of avoiding getting into trouble, um, finding you know glimmers of uh, uh, happy moments, um, and you know feeling uh, 
feeling like um, I just needed to survive. There were 14 children overall. Is that right? Four biological children and 10 adopted children? Yes. Do I have that right? Okay. Can you just go down through the list? Uh, just I don't expect the listeners to keep track of everybody, but um, just for the purposes of context, can you just, who was the oldest? Give us the names in descending order. So my oldest brothers, uh, Matthew and Sasha, were, they're the oldest twins. And they're biological children. They're Mia's biological sons. They are, yes. Okay. And, uh, and then there's her other biological son, Fletcher. Um, and uh, she and her husband at the time, Andre, uh, had adopted uh, my sisters, Lark and Daisy and Sumi. So they are my older siblings. And then uh, when Mia had come back to the States, uh, she adopted me as her seventh child. And then uh, she had adopted uh, my younger siblings, Malone and Tom and Min and Thaddeus, Isaiah and Quincy. And she had uh, another son. Okay. Wow. So these are 10 adopted children. Not to put too fine a point on this, but how does somebody actually go about this? Is there no mechanism for somebody, some sort of regulatory body to step in and say, oh, wait a second, like, what is the logic here? And is this in the interests of these children? I mean, obviously, a lot of this was about celebrity, but um, it's not only celebrities that you see adopting large amounts of children all the time. So how does this, what are the logistics of this? Mm. So, uh, yes, that, that I do feel like I can um, shed, shed some light on. Uh, just It's um, something that I have been more vocal about, which is generational trauma. And this process of uh, taking one's um, lived experiences uh, and, you know, in this particular case, you know, uh, traumas. And having them go untreated or unchecked or unresolved. And what happens is they then get re reapplied in, in the next generation of, fam of family. So say the traumas that Mia had experienced growing up, I, you know, feel had played out uh, between my siblings and I um with her children in general you know adoptive parents um adopting children to fulfill some kind of need of theirs um for what you know whatever kinds of reasons that they might have for adopting in the first place and uh in a way not being conscious or not being aware of or maybe even knowing that they that they had been through things growing up or in their in their lives that they hadn't treated or they hadn't resolved, and this is uh, you know what's what's considered to be you know a transmission of uh, intergenerational patterns. So it's you know not 
uncommon or you know like not uh as unique as uh one might expect um but there are um a number of adoptees uh who I've gotten to speak with who uh talk about the same kind of gen- generational trauma experiences where left with the burden to not not only heal from the traumas of being adopted but then on the post-adoption side we're left with uh the burden of also uh trying to resolve the traumas that we experienced in our families so you were pretty quiet about things until the until may of 2018 when you published a lengthy blog post chronicling and striking detail uh, the circumstances leading up to and following uh the events wherein mia accused your father woody allen of having molested your sister i think most people are your sister dylan i think most people are familiar with this story and it was on the heels of his having started a relationship with your oldest sister soon yi uh, you know you talk in that blog post very frankly, about abuses that went on in the house, physical abuse, emotional abuse, just, you know, manipulation. You're you're the therapist and I'm not at all, but it's really, it it has the flavor of a narcissistic borderline personality, Um, sort of, you know, Mia having a lot of these traits and leading this household. What made you decide to to speak up at that time uh, back, almost three years ago now, and um, really um, put these pretty pretty shocking events uh, out there in public. Yeah, Megan, um, you know, it really was uh, the way that I had started my, my blog article uh, and, you know, just um, hearing so much uh, and having been silent for so long. Um, I, I, you know, had, had been enjoying, a, you know, a somewhat, you know, private life, and, and um, it it got to a point I I just I needed to speak up. I needed to raise my voice and really kind of speak on the side of truth about what had happened, about the way I was raised, about uh, the experiences that uh, my siblings and I had uh, while growing up. Um, and um you know i you know feel like it has been um part of my own healing process uh and i certainly you know hope that um in sharing that that piece of my own experience you know that uh, it helps others um to go through a healing process for themselves including including my siblings Three of your siblings uh, are no longer living, which is pretty remarkable, you know, even for such a large family. Can you talk a little bit about um, what happened in in those cases? From what I recall, is my sister Tom, who had passed away first. Uh, I, I remember being in college at the time. It was uh, it was actually my last semester of senior year in college when I had called home and was notified that Tom had been uh, put into the hospital. I uh, had learned that um, she had overdosed 
uh, when she had taken a number of pills. This was following uh, a fight that she had with uh, with Mia. So this is contrary to the uh, reports, you know, that she had died from heart failure, uh, that uh, she had mistaken uh, one set of medication for another. So, you know, I you know remember Tom sharing with me, you know, her struggles with uh, depression and, you know, my attempts at advocating for her to get help, professional help uh, for that, and uh, having you know been denied. Um, so, uh, and then it was my my sister Lara, who had died uh, a number of years later, and um, I believe I was you know at this point in my early thirties. Uh, and then my brother Thaddeus, um, who uh, I had just indicated had passed away, um, had died uh, just over four years ago at this point. And when you all were growing up, was there recognition that there were uh, emotional issues, mental health issues that needed to be addressed among various various kids in the family? Or was it just sort of like this, it was everyone sort of just going along with this story that Mia and whoever else was was telling about the family. Did you? How much cognitive dissonance did you experience, just within the family setting? Uh, so Megan, I uh, I can tell you, you know, growing up, there was a you know a very strong uh, line, you know, that we had to we had to hold to uh, in terms of um, you know keeping up a, a certain kind of image and. Um, you know, it was uh, from my own experience. Uh, you know, very, very much about um, instilling fear, and uh, you know, I've indicated, uh, you know, a practice of brainwashing, and you know, the need to have Mia's approval or else. Uh, so it was. Uh, you know, uh, very challenging to, um, you know, keep up a, a certain kind of experience, uh, keep up a certain kind of appearance uh, while experiencing something, um, you know, quite the opposite. And in terms of, um, you know, seeking help, you know, what, what I can tell you is uh, uh, for myself, I'm, I'm a survivor of suicide and um, I, uh, of attempted suicide. Of attempted suicide, thank you. Yes, really. Um, and uh, so I, uh, you know, was fortunate to get uh, um, professional help. You know, since then I, I've, you know, uh, engaged in uh, in therapy, you know, throughout my life, and uh, which has been uh, altogether, you know, very helpful. You write in your post that there was a real difference between how the adopted children were treated and the biological children. And even beyond that, how some of the the children who were white were treated versus the ones who were not. Can you say a little bit about that and how you've sort of processed those dynamics over the years? 
I really appreciate you bringing uh, uh, attention to that. This is something that uh, is, uh, again, not as uncommon as uh, I you know, knew growing up. And that's something that needs to be highlighted. Like for me growing up, uh, I, despite being in a, you know, household full of other adopted children, I was not aware of an adoption community. I was not aware of adoption camps or culture camps. I was not aware of uh, support groups um, for adoptees. Wow. So even though she's one of the most notable adoptive parents, in the country, if not the world, she was not part of the sort of culture of, of adoption and adoptive uh, family units and extended families. Well, I can tell you, you know, I, di- I didn't go to any culture camps. I didn't, uh, you know, learn anything about what it meant to be Korean. I grew up, you know, feeling very much American, feeling very much uh, white. Uh, you know, as we as we had indicated, you know, one of my childhood uh, uh, heroes was uh, Superman. I've come to realize that uh, this, uh, you know, what what's called whitewashing uh, of transracial adoptees uh, is a common practice, uh, and even even to today. So. I, uh, you know, have come to learn about this term, this phrase uh, that's pretty, um, pretty much um, well known in the adoptee community, coming out of the uh, fog, coming out of the adoptee fog, coming out of the adoption fog. The phrase is is coming out of the fog. That's what you're talking about. Coming out of the fog. Mm-hmm. And also this idea of of whitewashing. I mean, that has a lot of mean it's it's applied in a lot of different contexts. But in this case, this would be this idea that a, a white family, usually American family, can adopt, you know, a child from anywhere. And this idea that that race doesn't matter. I mean, in a way, this was sort of the way people were talking about race 20, 25, 30 years ago, as if we were post-racial, you know, and there's kind of yes. like on an intellectual level, see some value in that potentially, but is there sort of people, people had good intentions, uh, and, but there were unintended consequences there. What I can tell you, and I, yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate you, um, taking that, taking in that direction. Um, yeah, you know, common phrases, uh, uh, you know, we don't see color right? or, you know, we're colorblind. And, uh, the backlash to that among transracial adoptees, uh, you know, myself included, is, is that no, you're denying a truth. You're denying uh, a piece of our identity. And where that translates to um, a lack of acknowledgement, a lack of exposure to uh, our culture, our cultural identities, our racial identities. Many of us grow up uh, hating ourselves, hating the way we look, partly because of the kind of uh, bullying that happens at school for looking different. Part of it is because of our uh, desire to be normal, uh, you know, to be um, accepted uh, into our families and our communities. 
it is this um, disconnect from ourselves uh, that we, you know, don't want to be uh, be the race that that we are, so we can fit in, so we can have this sense of belonging. And were you within the family? Were the kids who were adopted? Were you able to find any solidarity there? Because you know, I can think of of people, you know, parents who they'll they would adopt a child from another country, and then they seek to adopt another child from from the same country or of the same race. Even I, I even see this d- domestically: white parents adopting a, a a black child, and then they they think it would be a good idea to adopt another one. So the siblings have some some commonality. And again, this is coming from a good place, but, uh, you know, so were you within the, the siblings who were Asian, Southeast Asian, that sort of thing, were you able to bond at all? Or was that just kind of like off the table? Well, you know, I, uh, I had said, I, you know, I was, I was close with my sisters, uh, growing up. I, uh, you know, I was certainly close with my younger, my younger siblings, um, who, uh, are, Black and Thaddeus uh, was adopted from India, and uh, my sister Min, you know, was adopted from Vietnam. Uh, and um, I want to bring, you know, to uh, everyone's attention here that we have to do better. Uh, it cannot be this categorical uh, idea of it'd be great to adopt, you know, from the same country or of the same race. For me, I, I, I say, you know, that these are categorical ideas uh, and doesn't take into account uh, lived experience um, and, you know, individuality. Uh, you know, it's, it's a different experience if you adopt uh, biological siblings mm-hmm. as, as opposed to, you know, just two children from the same country even from the same city. So let's shift a little bit uh, for the moment to your, your practice. You're a family therapist. You, you specialize in uh, adoption work. Are most of your clients adoptees or do you, do parents or prospective parents come in to talk to you? What's, what's your client base like? Yeah. So just to dive in a little bit uh, about my career as a, an adoption therapist, uh, I've been in the field for about about 20 years at this point, you know, in the mental health field in general as a managing family therapist. And it was, uh, you know, about a decade ago, you know, about 10 years ago, maybe a bit more at this point, where my career shifted um, from being more of a, a community-based uh, general practitioner to working for one of the oldest uh, adoption agencies in the country. Oh, you were working for an adoption agency, actually. I was. Uh, okay. And I was providing post-adoption uh, support services. So uh, from there, uh, I've, uh, you know, just continued to be connected with adoption, with other adoption professionals, other organizations, um, you know, that really spanned the last 10 years. And 
at this point, again, kind of this parallel between my own journey and uh, my professional journey, you know, to understand the importance of working with uh, adoptees, adoptive parents, prospective adoptive parents, and uh, and birth parents, really working with with all the people involved with adoption and understanding that, if I may, you know, just understanding that, uh, um, you know, each have their own experience of trauma uh, from, you know, the, uh, the process of, uh, you know, from the adoption process itself. So when you say post-adoption services, are you talking mainly about children who are a little bit older when they're adopted? Uh, were you working like within the foster care system, that kind of thing? Or what was the population like? Right. So post-adoption refers to after the adoption is finalized. Uh, so right. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're highlighting this because uh, there's a very, very strong narrative out there, you know, that adoption is this single uh, life event this one-time event, you know, the adoption day, gotcha day. Yeah. The day, you know, you appear in court and your adoption is finalized. It really isn't just that, but it, it, it's what is put out there. You know, it's what gets put out there uh, so much, so often that uh, we forget or we don't like to look at. I'm going to go... I'm going to say it that way, you know, that we don't like to look at what happens after the adoption day. Yeah, the, the savior phenomenon, I think, is is really key. You know, when, when you were growing up, was there was there a sense in the family that, like, you all who were adopted should feel so lucky? Like, Mia had been doing you, had done you a great service, a great favor. Was it, was it discussed so overtly or was it just kind of beneath the surface? Well, I can certainly say for myself and, you know, from what I've gotten to hear from other adoptees at this point, uh, yes, this, there is this other very strong narrative of the adoptee being grateful for being adopted, for having this second chance of life, as, as you shared before. Uh, I certainly grew up feeling the need to be grateful for my life, for um, you know the things I was given, the opportunities I was given. And uh, you know, certainly I you know, received you know, a good education and uh, you know, surgeries for my cerebral palsy. And, did you know anything about Korea? Was that part of any discussion? Was there education? Was there? You said there. You, you didn't go to culture camps, and I guess I guess this is a this is a thing. There are like summer camps for adopted kids that are who would be from certain regions, and they would learn about their background. You said you did not do that sort of thing, but was there any um, particular attention paid to? the countries that um, so many of you had come from within the family, or was it just like a non-issue? Uh, my experience was it, it never came up in a significant way. And, um, you know, that uh, there is this, uh, this ongoing controversial debate, you know, how much 
do you uh, invite the uh, the native culture into your family? You know, if you adopt trans- transracial internationally or country-wise, or you know, or do you raise them as, as your own, um, mm-hmm. so so to speak? And uh, I would say, you know, this has been an ongoing debate. There are definitely uh, uh, folks out there saying. No, we raise them as our own. Others say, no, we do our best to, you know, have every opportunity, you know, to invite their their native culture. You know, other parents say, uh, we allow our, our child to take the lead. You know, we follow, you know, whatever the, you know, our child uh, yeah. says that they want, which puts a, a huge burden on the child. Uh, and right. you know, and that taps into a whole other issue, you know, about attachment and loyalty, uh, not wanting to upset uh, our adoptive parents. Right. You know, I'm also you, you say identity, and I it I notice when I go through some of the members of your family that several of the kids had different names over the years. I think you've always been Moses, but. For example, Sun Yi was called Gigi for a while, and Dylan went by both Eliza and Malone. Ronan, who's not adopted, has had four different names overall, I think. He was Satchel at birth, and I think he's also been known as Seamus and Harmon. What's behind this? Do you have any any theories? Is this something that comes out of adoption being in the mix, or is this just sort of peculiar to your family? You know, I really can't say. Uh... You know, growing up, uh, it, it did it did seem like it was you know just something uh, particular to Mia. So she was making these name changes, or were people like announcing that they had come up with a new name for themselves? My recollection, it, you know, it came from, you know, it came from her. It came from uh, you know her. Yeah, I guess you know going through name changes with with. Uh, you know, uh, a number of her children. I, uh, you know, do do want to say I've I've gone through uh, several name changes uh, as well. Oh, okay, at her behest, you're saying. So, I guess what I can point to is, you know, when when you're adopted from an orphanage, um, you know, and certain. Um, Documentaries, uh, you know, say One Child Nation, for example, you know, indicated a lot of uh, falsifying records. Uh, you know, just coming up with names, coming up with uh, you know stories of of uh, the orphans that would come in. You know, so-called orphans. You know, the children orphans that would come in that um, were given um, you know names, uh, and then when we're adopted. Uh, you know, we're, we're given uh, new names. Right. So, yeah. This just sounds like an extremely um, prosaic question, but I think people might be curious. Like, that's a lot of kids in the family, and you're all, I think you're relatively close in age. Like, were you just, did the apartment feel very small? Like, what were actually the logistics of this? I mean, I know you talk about being up at the country house in Connecticut, but did you have a lot of nannies around? Did it just, did it feel like you grew up in a group home? 
to some extent? Like how did, how did this actually sort of work out on a, on a day-to-day basis? I would say there's, there's quite a bit of an age gap between my youngest sibling and my oldest sibling. Okay. Okay. You know, I mean, it's spanning, you know, at least 20 years, I believe, you know, so really for me, what I can, what, you know, what I can say is, you know, I was the youngest of the first seven and then I was the oldest of the younger seven, you know, and what I mean by that is uh, uh, growing up in the household, you know, so yeah, I mean, growing up in an apartment in New York with, you know, uh, six or seven other you know, siblings, um, and, uh, you know, with, uh, shared bedrooms and it was, uh, as you can imagine, you know, kind of a tight, tight space. Do you feel you were raised by nannies? What I can say, Megan, is that I really appreciate, um, the people in my life growing up, uh, who were there. You know, we did have uh, uh, a caretaker growing up in in New York. Um, We also had uh, a number of caretakers uh, when we moved to Connecticut. And, uh, you know, for myself, it was the times with them that helped me feel uh, safe and helped me feel somebody, you know, was consistent and caring um, uh, and in a way looking out for me. Mm-hmm. And these were caretakers, caregivers who lived with you or they were coming in and out of the house? They were mostly coming in and out. Yeah, it wasn't, I, w- I would say it wasn't often we had uh, ones who were were living caretakers or, or babysitters. Okay. Again, I want to be careful here because obviously no one on the outside ever knows what goes on in in any household, uh, certainly not total strangers who essentially know everything they know from media accounts. But, you know, looking at this from a distance, there is something um, about your particular adopted family, the fact that it was essentially a single mother adopting all these kids, there, it gives off a real whiff of compulsion. And, you know, I find myself asking, like, why so many kids and why so many kids with disabilities? You're a family therapist now, and I'm not going to ask you to diagnose your own mother unless you already have. But uh, do you ever wonder if there's like almost a, I mean, there's definitely a, a savior complex going on here, but do you ever wonder if there was like sort of a Munchausen's by proxy element to, to all of this? Like what was driving her exactly? Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's, uh, my place to offer any, uh, uh, you know, psychological insight so much. Uh, okay. Nobody's ever tried to diagnose their own parents, of course, but now you're yeah. being, you're being very uh, diplomatic. Understood. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, but I appreciate the opportunity to, you know, highlight what I, what I will highlight is that um, this is something that is way too common uh, among adoptive families uh, is the need to fill a void the need to uh, 
adopt children uh, for their needs. The degree to which this sort of uh, mythology around Mia Farrow as a, you know, a person who does good work, good works, and as a deeply moral person, um, was she like a goodwill ambassador? Am I, am I remembering that that correctly? She for the UN, like. There was certainly a narrative around her that she was an exceptionally good person, and you know, you were you were fourteen when she accused your your father, your adoptive father Woody Allen, of sexually molesting your sister Dylan. And you know, it was it was striking that um, immediately public opinion went to her side, um, and a lot of that was because of the the Sunyi relationship, but, you know, anybody who knows anything about child custody disputes or, you know, accusations of, of sexual molestation of children knows that if, if such an accusation comes up within the context of a custody dispute, it really has to be uh, looked at skeptically or at least objectively. So, you know, I wonder if you have thoughts just about how much of public opinion went in Mia's favor because she had established herself as this sort of saint with 14 kids, many of whom were adopted. I guess I kind of pause when, uh, you know, when talking about public, public opinion, you know, things being put out to the public uh, and them having a, a, you know, a a saying at you know, for me, I can't speak to, you know, the reasons why people, you know, would find favor in supporting her uh, and, and the things that, you know, she's she's put out there uh, for the public. You know, what I can say is uh, I've really appreciated, like, it really has meant a lot uh, for those who have uh, supported uh, me and, you know, with my sharing of uh, my child abuse uh, and, you know, for, for my siblings who have died by suicide, the kind of upbringing and the kind of uh, uh, parenting and practices, you know, that we grew up with. And, um, you know, when it comes to understanding um, what occurred within my family, between my parents, uh, you know, during uh, that difficult time, you know, for me, I, I've put it all on my blog and, you know, there's uh, uh, a number of articles uh, out there as well, you know, that really speak to the facts of what uh, occurred during that time. And uh, I think I would just leave it at that to encourage people, you know, to read my blogs. Uh, you know, I have put some videos together as well, uh, and you know, to follow those articles that that speak to, you know, here's what actually happened. You are close though with with your father, is that right? Do you have any contact with anyone else in the family? I I've had, you know very minimal i mean virtually no contact with uh my family um you know with mia uh, or my siblings uh 
you know, those who had signed this um, affidavit, if you will, all in support of, uh, you know, the, their mother and uh, how how good of a parent, uh, you know, that she that she had been, you know, it was really uh, something that um, you know spoke uh, in in complete opposition of what I've been putting out there about my own experiences of uh, child abuse. Right, right. What is it like to? see and and I know you don't want to talk about public opinion but just just to press on this a little bit like what is it like to see basically an entire city like an entire culture I just have noticed the the media establishment rallying around uh Mia and her story you know when when Dylan wrote her open letter about you know the allegations of of abuse, she was it was under the auspices of Nicholas Kristof, who's a New York Times columnist. It seems like the cultural horsepower has has always been with her, and so I wonder if that's something that you find frustrating. There's you know all these Hollywood figures uh, saying that they regret working with with Woody Allen, and you know you do mention that in your blog post that it's sort of disheartening to see. Do you sense that tide beginning to to change at all? Um, are people thinking more deeply about about that story, um, particularly as they start to think more deeply about adoption? Maybe maybe overall culturally. I guess uh, you know where to go with this, uh, uh, Megan. Is you know that it's been. You know, a wave of positive support as I've opened up more about uh, my experiences, uh, opening up about uh, you know the practices of brainwashing and and uh, you know um, say you know, shall we call it you know fear-based parenting uh, you know shall we call it the abuse and um, there's you know these un- undeniable uh, deaths of my siblings. It, it just you know to put these truths out there and to receive such uh, an outpour of support, um, and you know some of which um, or too much of which involves uh, uh, other people's stories of their own abuse growing up of their battles with uh, suicide and as well as being adopted um, into abusive families. Uh, yeah, you wrote that uh, adoptees are four times more likely to commit suicide than non-adoptees. Is that what you said? Yeah, to, to uh, make sure that's out there properly, it, it, it's that we are four times more likely to attempt suicide. And that's, is that um, domestic adoptees as well as international, or is there a discrepancy there? Uh, I believe that the study did capture a sample of both uh, domestic and intercountry uh, adoptees uh, from adolescence to young adult. I believe that, uh, um, that the, the sample of adoptees that they used uh, and that's dating back to 2013 at this point, you know, that's coming up on 
um, what, uh, seven, eight years. Uh, and the, now that's 2021. And ha- do you know either anecdotally or is there any data looking at whether adoptees who have been able to get in touch with their biological parents, at least obtain some kind of information about themselves, are less likely to suffer from depression or, you know, attempt suicide, that sort of thing, than than people who have absolutely no avenues into learning about themselves at all? Oh, Megan, um, I'm going to have to come back. Uh, we'll, we'll have to, you know, dive into this, but just to highlight, uh, the birth family reunion it, it, is not uh, another single event. Um, and, you know, while, yes, there are some, you know, joyous uh, reunions, um, there's also a number that are just, they open up a whole other realm of trauma and grief and loss and just, um, you know, a whole other uh, uh, experience of what it means to be adopted. And again, this is one of these things people romanticize and oversimplify in their minds. Like, oh, this will be great. Now I understand. Yeah, I, I, I really do appreciate you highlighting those um, those points, uh, you know, overgeneralizing, uh, over romanticizing. Yes, absolutely. I guess my, my last question, Moses, is what, what is your life like as an adult? Do you have children yourself? Are you a parent? I am a parent of, of two children and, um, you know, my, my life as an, as an adult, uh, you know, I am very committed to this mission to help save, uh, the lives of adoptees. Uh, you know, I'm very committed to, to this, uh, you know, being a survivor myself and, uh, having my own personal, um, experiences. You know, I uh, continue to lead somewhat of a, uh, a private life uh, and respecting the kind of boundaries, uh, you know, as a, th- as a therapist. And, um, you know, with, my, with myself and my family being in the public eye, it's um, hard to do. Are your children adopted? No, they are not adopted. I am a father. Uh, I am, am very proud of my children. You know, they are uh, entering adolescence uh, at this point in their lives. I, you know, uh, support and appreciate, you know, them to, you know, lead uh, their own private lives. Uh, you know, that at this point, they're not also in the public eye. Uh, and and I really, you know, prefer it that way. Um, I think, you know, as a parent, there's a certain level of protection because uh, it can certainly be um, difficult managing public opinion and being out there in uh, social media. So, Well, Moses, I can't thank you enough for, for speaking with me. You do a really, a really fine job of threading the needle and the way you talk about this. I know it's, it's really tricky to, to balance uh, your personal story with, with these larger issues that are, that are important to you and that you've become so well-versed in. So I really appreciate your, 
your sharing all of this and for for being so so candid and taking so much time. Thank you so much, Megan. Um, this conversation is, you know, one of many that really need to be had when it comes to talking about adoption trauma, the issues surrounding adoption, being an adoptee, being raised as an adoptee. That was my conversation with Moses Farrow, an adoption trauma therapist based in Connecticut. He is the son of actress Mia Farrow and director Woody Allen, and has recently created videos on YouTube about his family and adoption work. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. This is a production of me and me alone, so if you'd like to support it, you can go to patreon.com slash theunspeakable. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving a rating and or a review on any of those sites, I guess, especially Apple Podcasts, ideally positive. For more information about the show, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. I hope you will tune in next week. I'll announce the next guest very soon on the website and all the usual social media spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now for ridiculously low gas prices, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.